Okay, well, welcome back to Virtual Shed, everyone. It's April 26th. The sun is shining. Spring is, you know, teasing us again by being here today when it was clearly absent yesterday. We have a very special guest today to Jesse of Montreal's eternal delight and, you know, to RJ's momentary chagrin because he usually gets to read the opinions that Lee sends in. Lee of Courtney is sitting oh, in with us today. Very happy to see you here, Lee. Big hello. Hi, Lee. Welcome, Lee. Hello. Hello. You got, hello. You guys can't see us waving on the video, but we're very happy we thought, okay, that's it. She sent us a flame mail the other day, and we thought, okay, we're going to have her actually come right into the shed and let us know. Let us know what's really shaking. We'll get to that a little bit later. we got a bunch of stuff to cover. As usual, we have a list. A list largely consisting of foolishness, but you never know. There might be things to learn. So sit on back and dial in, and here we go. We were just talking about Korean accents, because we're that kind of person. And RJ, you're saying you were watching somebody on the Oscars last night. Watched the Oscars last night, and if it's uh, like any previous years, KJ and PJ, I can assume you did not. I did not, no. And I was going to ask you, you and how many dozen other people actually did watch. And Lee, did you watch? I didn't, and I used to be such a diehard watcher, but kind of what PJ said, I think it was the lowest rated ever Oscars, lowest oh, watched yeah, yeah, Oscars yeah. ever. Well, it's kind of interesting because we've seen some pretty bad award shows lately. The... Uh, the Golden Globes, <laughs> yeah, there you go. The Golden Globes were terrible. They just fell flat. They even had, they had Tina Fey and Amy Poehler. One of them was in uh, L.A. and one of them was in uh, New York. And the chemistry kind of was all gone because of the, I guess, the time delay or how they wrote it or I don't know what it was. But uh, that, that entire show sucked. And uh, then uh, we watched, Sue and I watched the uh, Grammys. And I'm going, yeah, sure, I'll watch, thinking I'll just walk away for large swaths of it. Turned out to be an amazingly good production, like really well made, fantastic performances. You know, I actually took detailed notes, but I'm not going to go over them because I have detailed notes from the Oscars and I think two award shows in one one shed dogs episode is just a little bit much. That's probably one and a half too many. Just, yeah, there you go. <laughs> but just, uh, just off the top of my head, the Taylor Swift performance, just like, I mean, she's a great singer and everything. Her songs are fantastic, but the visuals, they just had amazing visuals for a lot of these performances. You know, she starts laying on the top of a, a shed like that's filled with moss so it has this amazing, earthy, kind of dreamy feel, and uh, it was just fantastic. Um, was and, it all you know, virtual, or was it real, or what do you... Well, each performance, yeah, don't, that, that was real. There was a real shed wow. made up, and she ends up getting down off it, coming around the back. She's inside the shed, and there are her two live performers strumming away, like in the song. Like, Oh, that's fun. Oh, yeah, yeah, and she comes out front uh, afterwards as well. And just, Anyway, that that's just one example of... Uh, of many same thing for the Oscars. Sorry to hear they didn't get a big viewership. People are just assuming, yeah, this is going to be another one of those awful kind of remote zoom like shows. The golden globes was zoom based and it was just like terrible. All these people in their little picture bubbles saying things out of sequence with each other and try They, they did their own writing. Clearly the jokes weren't, you know, falling flat. Um, this was completely different. Okay, so it starts in a nightclub, and the first thing you notice, everyone would notice, you think the exact same thing. You think, these people are not wearing masks. Like, they're in a nightclub. There's about, it's a terraced nightclub. There's about six tiers coming down and maybe four or five tables per tier. It's about four people per table. They're not running masks, so Regina King opens it. It's one of these multi-host ones where there's not a single host. She doesn't say one joke in the entire opening, but it's not gravitas either. She's just talking about the movies that happened and she's fantastic. She's really well-spoken. And about halfway through, she's going, I know what you're thinking. She goes, we, we are treating this like a Hollywood production. So we have strict protocols about how everything happens. You know, every, everyone here has been vax tested and retested. We have protocols while we're filming the film, the film is rolling. We take our masks off. When we go to commercial, the masks come back on. So 
So she basically emphasized mm. that this is just exactly as, you know, what KJ experienced when you did that production with the Saturday Night Live people. Yeah, yeah. So, so this whole thing was directed like Stephen Sondheim or something, wasn't it? Otterberg. Soderbergh, thank you. Oh, yeah. did he direct it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, did. I saw his name there. And the credits were cool because they had all the people who were presenting. They had the writers highlighted. I'm thinking, if you're a writer on an award show, do you really want to get highlighted? I mean, how many of those yeah, stinkers? Those award credited. introductions are just flat. Like, But no, actually, the way it worked was they would be introducing the five nominees the camera would turn to each nominee table and the person presenting, like it started with Regina King, went on to Laura Dern and went on to other people. They would basically start talking. Now, these are professional actors, so they may well have memorized their lines, but they were talking and they were not looking at scripts or teleprompters or anything. And they were saying, you know, I really liked what you did with that particular role, because it's, it's something that has not been done or, you know, I'm, I'm doing them a disservice, but they would basically make it personal for so, every single nominee. So could you, cause so I'd forgotten that I heard this, but I heard a blurb about how this was going to go. And that's where I heard what's his face. Steven Soderbergh directed it. And I heard they were making quite a deal out of how it was going to be like a movie and that the people there, the hosts were sort of intended to be, playing themselves being a host you know what i mean they're 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 kind of doing an act well this is how brad pitt would do presentations at the oscars so this is how i'm going to do it so you were left wondering did they have scripts you were left wondering is the authentic person speaking or is he just presenting some you know like of course we present ourselves in a way that we want to be perceived we all sort of act to that extent but are they really consciously acting and, and behaving not as they do at all in real life? Were you able to get anything of that? Well, yeah, I actually thought of that. And I thought, are they that good actors? I mean, they are. But do you do that kind of, do you do well, that kind of prep for an award show? Like, typically, you can tell people haven't really prepared much. They come together, they practice. Yeah, they practice their jokes a little bit. But Well, maybe, maybe he just did that. Well, if it's Steven it Soderbergh, I could definitely see that. I could, I could see that what you're saying that they basically know what they're doing. But on the other hand, it doesn't really matter, does it? Not to me, but I mean, because it's quite enjoyable to watch. Like, wow, this is real, and you could see the people receiving these compliments or some semi-insightful discussion of what they went through when they produced their works of art. They would brighten up, smile, and they, they really meant something to them. So did, so did this all happen as the nominations are being announced? This is before the awards announced and they talk amongst themselves. Yes, exactly. It's oh, not cool. Yeah, yeah. It's not just a list of people. It's let's talk about a little bit about this. There was very little showing of the movies uh, because because there's a trade off there, right? It can only be a three hour show. They yeah. they they can only do so much, and I thought that was just fine. Well, so I PBR'd it, so I'm going to watch it. It's the first time they ever didn't have Best Picture as the last oh, the, award. It was like the third last, I think. It was very odd. There were awards popping up all over the place that you would have thought, hey, that's too early for that one, isn't it? Good. And uh, I don't know, was he trying to get the audience a little bit off their... No, this well, is, the, the last one was for Chadwick Boseman, right? Well, it was supposed to be. And that's why they left it till the end, because they were sure. So the anecdote is don't count your chickens. Yeah. Yeah, I guess they wanted to have that fantastic ending with, you know, because uh, somebody had, had died and what a Did, great tribute it would have been. Has anybody seen uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom? No. Because that's his performance there, right? So I, I'm, I'm, because I see all the headlines today that he was snubbed. And I thought, well, how does Anthony Hopkins feel about that Chadwick Boseman was snubbed? Uh, you know, like, was he snubbed? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about why they bet on him so heavily. Me too. So, and uh, although since he didn't show up, uh, Anthony Hopkins doesn't get too much sympathy. And also... When they were given their little It was thing. three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> He's old. He's eighty three. 
<laughs> they were also when whoever it's essentially was actually a lifetime achievement award though he's got to show up he doesn't have that much more lifetime to show up for that's true when they were when whoever it was that introduced that particular award the final award i can't remember was saying some personal things about the father and they talked about the screenwriter and how this role was written for anthony hopkins and i took great umbrage yeah, at that. i'm outraged I think outraged. the role was written for KJ McNulty. Well, and, and they certainly might have, he set the model have. for anybody else who's going to play it. I, I can't believe that didn't get shouted out. <laughs> Come on. You probably tweaked it a little bit for Hopkins, I guess. Yeah, they made it easier. <laughs> yeah. So there's a fun, a fun observation to make there, though. I wonder if they switched the order of awards around because they recognized that they were having dwindling advertising revenues. Like, no advertiser wants to go in the first half of the thing if all the viewers are going to be there at the end. Hmm. So if they mix it all up, they can up their rates for the whole entire program. The other thing, this will come up later when we deal with listener mail. If it's now going to be a requirement to be a good actor, to be a host at the awards guys like Kanunu can just forget it he's never going to be hosting he's just never going to be there skinny i know this will come just, up uh, it's a setup you could just later. put that put that shovel away for a moment <laughs> and uh we got listener mail on that lee that's what i'm all right <laughs> as i was looking around today I, I i clicked on ricky gervais doing the golden globes which would have been two years ago yeah. Oh my God, that's a funny opening. It's oh hilarious. my God. And he says, the Oscars didn't hire me this year. Uh, is it something I said? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Incredible. he totally in, insulted the uh, insulted ho- Hollywood. Yeah. Yep. And very An- well. Another thing about the thing last night was uh, absolutely no music to play off people speaking. Oh, right. Was there no time limit? No time limits. A couple of them, like there are a couple of Danish guys that won for the uh, best foreign film. And one of the, the guy doing the main speaking for the two Danish guys, uh, his daughter had just died not long ago, maybe a month ago. Jesus. Yeah. So he just went, oh no, his daughter died two weeks before production started. <sighs> and so the whole movie became like a little bit of a tribute to her in a, in a sense in her honor. But, but anyway, uh, everybody was just riveted and the speech went on for like a good eight minutes, I'd say. Ooh. And how they do that then, because they do have to keep it the whole show to a certain time length, right? So how do they, does somebody else just get like nothing? Yeah. I, I don't know. I really honestly don't know how they, how they pulled you, off. Yeah. Did off. you see any guys in little costumes like bellhops, you know, scurrying around <laughs> delivering notes to people who then scowled and shook their heads? Could be. You know, um, it's, Mr. It's, Mr. Soderbergh would like you to know that you're not going to be on stage tonight at all. <laughs> what? Well, I mean, Francis McNorman made up for it by giving a characteristically blunt and funny, super short speech. I've seen her in award shows before and whenever she's getting up to speak, she's waving people off. <laughs> like she's, she's doing all these stage directions as she goes up. And then she just, you know, like the, she was up on stage twice. And the first time she howled like a wolf, that was her speech. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, Yunya Jung, did you guys see Minari? No. No. Oh. Oh. Cool movie, cool movie, and it's it's just so nice to see, um, you know, a foreign movie, or yeah, that you and you recognize people in it. Ha ha. Well, it would be great if what you didn't only have to look forward to was a remake of a movie that you had really liked twenty years ago, and all the best you can do is not hate it, and that's what you get for your movie content in the coming year. Like, geez, mm. I'd, I'd rather see more you know, foreign movies than that. But, uh, Lee and, and our listeners, I sent to KJ and PJ last night, the, uh, a recording of her speech. She was great. And, uh, Lee, I'll send you a copy, uh, later on and, uh, we'll, we'll see if we could put it in the show notes. If, uh, Google has not taken it down yet. Yeah. She had, uh, Brad Pitt introduced her and he was one of the weaker introducers. I felt that Brad, uh, maybe he didn't want to get produ- uh, directed by, uh, Steven Soderbergh. You guys maybe, he the was playing, maybe he was playing the true Brad. Yeah. You That's know. how he would be as an announcer. That's I how he would be as an actor if he wasn't stiff, getting the hell directed stiff, out of him. Stiff. <laughs> right. He had a, well, he had a little ponytail, so he's probably getting kind of Keanu-like in that regard. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes. Oh, that's funny. We're going to hear about that. That's really good. Uh, we are for sure. <laughs> but uh, she, yeah, she kind of dissed him as well. She said, uh, oh, yeah. it's so great to see you in person. You know, the whole time we filmed, we never saw you because Brad Pitt was an executive producer. One of the uh, long speeches was Daniel Kaluuya. No, he was pretty good, but it was more like stream of consciousness style. And who's he? Uh, don't know. Thanks, KJ. <laughs> <laughs> don't know. I've got my note, Daniel Kaluuya, and I don't know what he was in. Sorry. But he's his mom's in the audience there, and he's, he's just going and thinking. And my mom, my dad, they had sex, and here I am. He goes, <laughs> mom's jaw just dropped. <laughs> it was just, anyway, it's just a nice little moment, you guys. Cut to mom. Okay. Was he the guy? Was he the? Was he the one from uh, Judas? Probably the, about the the <laughs> movie about the Chicago Black Panther. I think so. Finally, my final note is uh, Harrison Ford, and I'm going. Oh, this is not going to go well because I've seen him bumble along and stuff. Uh, nope, he was on fire. Maybe yeah, once. I watched that. Yeah, once again, Steven Soderbergh, maybe, because it's directed, because it's treated like a, a real production. Um, he talked about notes that they received in a movie. Well, he about, was, was he introducing Best Editor? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Best Editor. He talks about, and he goes through specific notes that they received. You know, this, uh, this, this thing goes on for too long. This is boring. I don't find this whatever, you know, I can't remember the specific notes, but then he says, and those notes were for Blade Runner. <laughs> he goes, <laughs> and you know, so they're all kind of negative notes and you know, I guess you could think, Oh, the people giving the notes were wrong. No, his point was that that was before the edits. Yeah. Yeah. And so he really yeah. did a good job of bringing editing, film editing alive. And, you know, as PJ would know, doing, you know, podcast edits, that's kind of like a microcosm of, you know, we take uh, me just babbling on. And by the end of this, the viewers won't know a thing. They'll just think that I'm <laughs> lucid, that yeah. uh, all Mr. my comments Chris. have been in order. I'll tell you in a minute who Daniel Kaluuya was, and you'll just fit that right in when you ask me. <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. perfect. No, I, but Lee, you were right. It was for Judas. You were yeah. correct. He was playing the the character, the guy who was that. And that's I, you know, everybody knows about Eldridge Cleaver and the Black Panthers from the from California, right? But this was about Il the Illinois chapter, and uh. I gathered, you know, it, it was really really well known there, sort of midwestern eastern states, but got completely overshadowed. And I I think he got killed. I think he was killed by the FBI or the CIA when he was laying in bed asleep next to his pregnant wife. Oof. Yeah. So, I mean, it, you know, dramatic life. And I think the movie is really quite something. Well, that's not at all what I expected from the title. So that maybe gets <clears throat> some attention for sure. That's it. That's my, uh, that's my Oscars review. Okay. Well done, RJ. Thank you for that. Saved me three hours of my life I got back there yeah I was your uh, your correspondent I was gonna ask RJ like you said they were sitting around like in the thing you know it looked like they're in a club or at a table mm. and stuff so there's people did it feel did it seem weird to have people sitting close together at a table or sitting groups of people at you know like right now I know when I watch stuff and it'll see it'll be old footage and there's crowds or something and it's just kind of creepy you know because people are all clumped together and everything and we're so used to not having that so i just wondered if that if it looked strange like you said you noticed right away ooh no masks you know but was it like ooh they're sitting together not to me no no yeah. i just don't i i see i can see what you're saying though no, i can no not not for me i'm not sure why I'm yeah. still waiting for masks to show up in TV and movies, not the whole business of backstage. We talked about this before, and we, what we ended up talking about was the backstage business of making sure actors and crew guys didn't get sick. I mean, as part of the plot of the movie, somebody has to run back out to their car to get their mask because they forgot it. And as a result, they don't get shot in the hold up, you know, whatever it is. You don't, you're still not seeing the whole thing incorporated into movies that are supposed to be about contemporary life. At least I haven't. And I, I guess it's just not going to happen because it's going to date those movies so severely. But, well, I find think, it but uh, And I think that this is going to go on long enough that 
Hollywood will start putting it into plots and stuff. You know, even a, a little bit. I, I mean, I think they have to sooner or later. I'm, surpri- I'm really surprised it hasn't started yet, too, because we're a year into it. And yeah, and it's it's an important part of people's day to day life. And you would think that's what the movies are trying to sort of semi pretend to reflect. Yeah, well, I mean, even- masks were an important part uh, back in was it the Spanish flu? Yeah, um, they were used a lot back then, but we don't really know it because any like any movies about that time people just don't wear masks i guess because you want to feature your uh movie stars faces right it is kind of weird because i remember reading some stuff about the the director of coronation street you know the british soap when they were they had taken a big hiatus of course because last year everybody did you just were not shooting anything and then they came back together and they talked about how they were positioning everybody differently you know like they would sit on this bench and this bench instead of sitting together and they had to shoot things so people are distanced like that so they look like they're kind of standing together but one's in front and one's behind but they said they just the director then said they didn't want to have the shows really focus on it and be a focus on COVID because they said that would just be depressing. So they didn't bother mentioning it very much. They made passing references because they said it was so much a part of everybody's day-to-day life all the time off screen that they wanted to kind of have a break from it on screen. So maybe that's the reason why they don't Put See, it on too much? If this was Twitter, I would come back and say that it's irresponsible of them to not normalize the wearing of masks and social distancing. They choose to make it all the blocking just looks weird. You know, what the hell are those guys doing shouting at each other across the bar? You know, they do that instead of what the discomfort of being reminded that you're supposed to wear a damn mask. I mean, I, I don't yeah. know. Well, and you'd, you'd also think that Coronation Street is really kind of very current. You know, if you talk about any show, they're kind of right up to what's going on in that neighborhood. And you'd think that they would, it'd be sort of an easy one to slip that into. And I don't think offend people, but what about? Yeah, because people don't tend to watch reruns of Coronation Street, do they? Because it's kind of like, it goes on and on. You just watch the current stuff, right? Yeah, you can watch like a whole week's worth on Saturday or something, but you're probably not going to go back and... I mean, although you can, people buy box sets and watch, you know, Ken Barlow in 1962 or something. Well, I just did this month. Somebody's started posting them on Facebook, just random episodes from when I used to watch. And I I have a little gander, a little, wow. little memory lane. Lee, how is your afternoon blocked off? What we wanted this segment to be would be, we would have a whole episode... And then at the end, you would come in and tell us why we were wrong. <laughs> that's, that's what Jesse of Montreal would like, yeah. But, oh, man, I can't believe Is that my, my reputation? You know, what is she going to call us bad about? Uh, no, no, not, I not really. So. I don't think so. Although, it's just that Jesse is hoping to see a strip torn office. That's yes, basically likes that. what it is. Well, Jesse's well, sort of a small person that way. That's really what it is. No, I think everything that Jesse does and says is, is perfect. Um, oh. but, <laughs> well, what I've heard anyway, we're screwed you guys. We're screwed. <laughs> um, but you know, we could touch on my last letter, which was PJ said you, you wanted to bring that up here anyway, which was about truth telling in, in movies or mini series. Such as the crown. We should probably try to recall whatever on earth it was that provoked. It, your... was, KJ. it was KJ. And it wasn't really provoked. Um, <laughs> but you guys were talking about the crown. Kevin was saying that how he was really enjoying it. He really liked it. And he thought it was excellently written and one of the best miniseries and all that kind of stuff. And then there was one part in his commentary where he said that we've lived through so much of it. So, so much of it is real already because, you know, we lived through Diana mm-hmm. and we lived through all that stuff. So it's kind of real as opposed to a mini series about World War II or something when none of us were alive. And that although, you know, we couldn't know whether this really happened in the meeting or whether that really got said in a room, it didn't matter. At which point, again, almost like the swell in O'Hara, <laughs> I nearly fell off my treadmill going, it 
does matter. It completely does matter because there's there's a certain element to the crown because we have all lived through it that people are taking this stuff as gospel they are people are watching it and saying charles and camilla are you know evil horrible people to the point that they spewing vitriol on charles and camilla's twitter account that it has to be taken down because they're taking this stuff which is historical fiction as fact I mean, that's, you know, it's up to the audience to try and discern like what is, what isn't real, but it is, it's kind of like when Ben Affleck made Argo, which was about the hostages released from Iran and the whole movie completely didn't mention Canada or Ken Mm. Taylor or anybody having Mm. anything to do with it. So the movie people were, were chastised. They were saying, yeah, Ben Affleck's answer was it's a movie. It's a movie. It's not historical fact. It's a movie. And so, yes, that's correct. So is it a question but of degree, the, really? The movie's the movie. So Argo was done, people chastised it, and away it went. And it was and it was finished. The crown goes on and on and on and on and really builds up in people's minds pictures of what may or may not have happened, but it presents them as though they happened. And the people are you know they're 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 not refuting it they're not saying anything but people are vicious now with social media they're absolutely vicious about stuff that eh, we don't know you know we okay but from an entertainment perspective do you watch the crown do you enjoy it i watched it until i couldn't anymore right yeah because i only watched uh, season one i just loved it and I definitely was impacted in the way that you're describing. So I would see Philip behaving in a certain way and I would think, well, that's kind of selfish. But these are interactions that probably, well, almost certainly never happened in the way that they're depicted in the show. So I got to agree with you on that point. On the other hand, I just loved it. <laughs> like I really, really enjoyed watching it. And it is, it is really well done, except for Jillian Anderson, Jesus. Um, right, right. Like she, I, I really like her as an actor, but. But what were they thinking oh, in casting her oh. for this? I just don't get it. But please, please go on about that. What, 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 what specifically? What didn't you like about her performance? Well, who is she playing I, first? Just tip Margaret Thatcher. Oh, Margaret okay. Thatcher. I just find it so. Well, for one thing, I think it's a really strange casting decision. I just, you know, I mean, not that she has to look like Margaret Thatcher particularly, but um, I just, I just found it really strange, and I find it just a, yeah, it's kind of like eating razor blades to me. I just kind of because because it's so one note. Yeah, yeah, and that she was kind of the same in her kitchen as she was in the in Parliament and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So like it was, every parody of Margaret Thatcher that you've ever yeah. seen, where yeah. she speaks yeah. to her dogs the same way she speaks to the MPs, the same way she speaks to the press, all of it. Yeah. Okay. And maybe she did. Maybe she talked to Dennis that way at home. Yeah, but the trouble, yeah. but that that gets you right back into the same trouble. Like maybe they really did have all those conversations that people are so angry about, but maybe they really didn't. And I don't know whether Margaret Thatcher was a one note person or not. It's the same exact flavor. Her persona was pretty much one note. And the thing with the, you know, the royal family, I mean, they're a hugely public, public family, but they're also massively private. Yeah. So the, and with a lot of stuff around them to keep them private. So assumptions made with all of these conversations and everything, um, you know, other than Diana and now Megan and Harry, they just don't spew themselves out uh, there like but, that. But, so but there's simple. been so many tell-all books published by senior equerries and, you know, heads of the house of maids and I don't know what all else. All these guys that get out and make their buck on the book in their two years in the Royal, they've all published tell-all books, I think, lots of them. Yeah. So I, I don't know. And again, did they all get successfully sued for libel and slander or, or were they telling truth that's been incorporated? I have no idea. But it leads me to a question, two questions. One is, is it just about degree? So if 
think if they have if they have Charles scowl at the wrong time without saying anything, it's going to send a message that may or may not be true. If he makes a whole vitriolic speech, it may not be true. I don't know where you draw the line. And then the second question would be, uh, how do you fix it? Do you put a great big giant block letter di disclaimer at the beginning of every episode that says, please be aware that most of this is fictional and not really, you know, like, what do you, how do you fix it? Well, you know, when they, when they make movies, they say things like, uh, this movie is based on true events. Yeah. Which means that, yep. A bank did get robbed once. Well, and again, it doesn't necessarily mean any of the inside of it is is real. Yeah. But so usually, the people, you know, I don't, I don't think that people were driving down the street screaming at Ben Affleck because he left Ken Taylor out of the movie that he made. If he'd have made but, it in 2020, they probably would be. Because, but, but maybe, they, maybe they would have. You know, maybe they would have. But even now, like the director of The Crown has publicly, you know, said when all the stuff was happening with all the vitriol, has publicly said, you know, it's not historic, yeah. it's not history. It is fiction, yeah. fiction, it's fiction. So, and there is, I mean, the audience has got to think, but I think audiences don't think. Right, so they could have done a better job with, like you say, like it could have been like the very opening of every episode could have said, this is, uh, this is fiction. Kind of like the opposite of Fargo, right? Fargo, uh, the series was total fiction and they started with the episodes depicted in, herein really happened. This is a true <laughs> story. They purposely did that, just mocking the whole thing, right? And then you'd know, uh, not. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think I think that um, that I I gotta uh, believe that the writers and producers of The Crown researched the shit out of everything. They they got and you know they also got to find the best entertainment value and keep the audience there. And that um, Gillian Anderson would have researched the shit out of Margaret Thatcher. Okay. Before I are we are we have we put the crown to bed for the moment? Then probably. <laughs> and I just want to say what a relief it is to not be the most cynical person in the recording for once in my life. That's good. How's that? Uh, I think, yeah. yeah. I got to ask you guys, uh, cause we have Lee here as well in, uh, pots and pans. Oh, good. I was just going to ask you about that. Lee, what is the difference between a pot and a pan or how can you describe them? What's a pot and what's a pan? Well, in my thinking, I always think of a pot as something deeper, like a pan is shallower and a pot is something deeper. But then when I read in recipes, they talk about saucepans. <laughs> yeah, medium saucepan. Um, yeah. <laughs> what the hell yeah, is a saucepan? So That's what I want to know. Yeah. yeah. And I, then, then I think that they mean frying pan, but then they don't. Yeah. Um, so that's my, that's the way I would kind of differentiate is a pan is less deep than a pot, but I don't yeah, know. Broad and not deep. And a yeah, pot it's not, is, it's not a frying pot. What's a skillet? Frying pan. So it's just a synonym. I think so. skillet. I would, I would say that's even shorter than a frying pan. Shorter. You mean less shallower? Shallower. Shallower. I'm with you on this though, RJ. I, I hate to say it, but I am with you on this. And and Lee, you pointed it out. It's the whole why do they say a saucepan? They mean a pot for God's sake. Drives a, me nuts. They don't Cause, yeah. Because we got fresh prep and you'd think that they would standardize, right? But they often will say, grab a saucepan, I go, okay. <laughs> well, let me just think about what I'm cooking here, because I'm I'm on my own at this point. Yeah. <laughs> and why don't they ever ask you to fry bacon in the bottom of a saucepan? You know, like <laughs> Okay, that I was it. That was all. Well, that's that's a good one. And I, like I said, I'm surprised to find myself supportive. Oh, thank you. There it is. Has anybody seen, I just saw this today, has anybody seen salmon bacon in the grocery store? Where it's sa it's salmon, but it's cured like bacon or something? Has anybody seen that? I've never heard of that. Like bacon? Like it like would have the same smoky kind of? I don't know. It's sort of laid out. I saw that they showed a picture of the package and got whoever put this on rave reviews it looked kind of like almost soft salmon in little bacon like strips right because they fry it like, sorry yeah, yeah like i think bacon. 
Yeah, Did yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that, yeah. maybe only. Yeah, I think so. I was just wondering if anybody even heard of it. Not me. No, kind of interested though. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so you could I, do that up in a skillet then. <laughs> or a saucepan. <laughs> or I like fry pot. I think we should start promoting fry pots or f- Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> now, now I'm all ruffled about that. I, that pots and pans entry in our list, it all looked innocent there. And now I'm a little bent because they're so careless with their terminology. What else did there was another one here that I was oh NFTs. Mm. <laughs> I actually looked that up. I, I didn't know what that was, but okay. Well, then now we're talking about it. I've what looked is, it up, and people are selling their like artists are selling their their songs with MF, NFTs and stuff, and Bitcoins buy them and like so. I know about it, and I still don't know what the yeah. hell they are. That's right. So we have a panel of so, four people here. And none of us has a deep knowledge of NFTs. So, of course, I think we should talk about it. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> make pronouncements as though we're experts. Like, this podcast is an NFT. So, first of all, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, we can do that. But first of all, so NFT, uh, don't recall, is it non-fungible token? Yeah. There you go. Yes. And it's based on blockchain technology, the same technology that brought us Bitcoin. Yep. And uh, it's a way to authenticate the NFTs, non-fungible tokens are statements like verifiable statements that someone owns the concept of something. So an artist named Beeple, I got him on my uh, Twitter feed now. He posts one image a day. Fascinating guy. He's been doing this for years. He takes 3D models that are available in the public domain and he arranges them into little scenarios and creates images, right? So he took a collage of maybe 150 of these images, made them all smaller, but put it in a super high-resolution res- photo so you could blow it up to the size of a wall and it would still be detailed. And he made it into an NFT, a non-fungible token, uh, kind of like a digital signature saying, I certify that the purchaser of this NFT owns the concept of this one of a time collage. Now, anybody who wants to can go on the web and look at this collage, although I couldn't find it in high resolution, but I could look at all the little images in it. So I get to enjoy it and I do like his stuff. Uh, But one person who paid, it turns out around $57 million gets to say, I own it. This is mine. Like you feel free to look at it, but I'm the guy who owns this concept? Yeah, but but can I print it off? This blow it up and yeah, put yeah, it on he my can, wall? yeah, yeah, he can. Oh, can you? Yeah, yeah, at, at your own house, yeah, but you can't put it up on a website and say, "Look at this." Uh, um, you can, people do, but but in reality, you're breaking some copyright laws, right? You don't have the rights to those images. So how but, is it different, RJ, than if somebody painted? You know, so we can all go into an art gallery and look at the painting anybody can look at it but only one person owns that painting correct and i can't take a picture of that painting and then sell it as my own work so how does it differ from that from the tangible stuff like that that's right it doesn't really i mean you've got a physical mona lisa on the wall and only one organization owns it and like you say anybody who wants to pay at least the price of admission can go in and I think the Mona Lisa is probably public domain for images on the web. But but if it was a newer painting, you wouldn't even be able to put those images up on your website without breaking some copyright laws. So I don't think there is a difference except for he didn't bother printing a wall-sized version of this thing. And I think it's a house of cards. Sounds like it. Can, can you go back to the 52 million here? So people <laughs> created this thing, right? Mm-hmm. And somebody bought it? Yes. It was in an auction done by Christie's. It was the first ever, I think the first ever auction maybe of an NFT or the first time Christie's had done it. And um, somebody bought it for $52 million. Yes. The bidding started and the next thing you know, it went wild. And there's, oh. you know, there's billionaires, there's oligarchs everywhere now, right? And what are you going to do with your billions of dollars, right? You can only spend so much of it. So you're just sitting there. This is fun. I like this guy's works. 50 billion, 57 billion or million. I mean, fine. But then what do they get for that? 
they get pride of ownership. They get a little certificate. They get, uh, they get. But the, it's not. It's not like they can hang it in their lobby that's, ears. That's well, you can. Oh, I guess they could print it and do. Yeah, okay. And yeah, some they can. Of the they, stuff isn't even printable. Like artists are selling songs. Yes. Like somebody bids on a song, and then they own this one NFT song, um, and it's. I, I don't know how that even works because, like, what? They're the only person that can play it? I just don't even get that. No. Yeah, like, the Beeple example sounds to me like nobody else can use those images to make money unless they want to pay. So it's just like copyright. But when you started talking about this, you said it was concepts. And I thought, oh, well, maybe this will finally resolve my longstanding grievance with abstract art. And the example I've used for my whole life is the first guy that bolted a urinal to a wall and said it was art, had a concept. Art can be anything, great. So if if he can make a token out of that concept, anything can be art. We don't have to prove it five different ways, 500 ways, all of that. But I'm, I'm quite confused over, like an image seems pretty fungible to me. The token is not fungible though. Mm. And the token is what says, now I don't understand it below just making that statement. Because what prevents Beeple from rearranging this collage yeah. into a different combination and yeah. then selling that one probably for a lot less because people realize what he's up to. I think if you're a billionaire, maybe you don't really care. It's just fun. Jeez. Well, if that's the case, I should get on board. If there's billionaires out there just dying to shovel money out, I should just get on board. Or become a billionaire for that matter, like because yeah. that way you can just throw the money out. Yeah. If it's if a concept is so much broader than a specific example of that concept, right? Like Bolton the urinal is very specific way to demonstrate that all everything is art. But if you if what you're having ownership of is that concept, anything can be art. That's way broader than one example. And if what Beeple is selling and what that guy purports to own, God knows how you'd defend it in court. He purports to own the idea that you take little guys and pose them in dioramas and make a big collage out of it. The other thing about Beeple is kind of interesting because he's a, you take one look at him and he looks like an engineer and he, he doesn't, and pardon me to all engineers out there. You don't all look alike. He looks like a 1960s style guy that might wear a pocket protector. He actually knows that. So he plays it up a little bit and he's got a little bit of a, anti-artist thing going on i think i think he's up to something is what i'm saying he posts a new image every day and he doesn't start talking in terms of artistic terms i think he's just grabbing a bunch of 3d images and slapping them together in interesting ways very visually appealing to me i mean i like i get one of his images every day and i think well, that's kind of fun they're often kind of gruesome though but uh Anyway, I just think that's, there's something there. I think he's poking fun at the urinal on the wall crowd. Well, to that, if that's true, then I'm on his team. I'm also on his team because he got $57 million from somebody for something. I'm usually on that guy's team unless they got it from doing something heinous. Well, he's on his way to becoming some kind of oligarch because he's, he's <laughs> releasing these images and selling, he's selling NFTs left and right now. Jeez, well, I don't think we're any closer to actually understanding what an NFT is then. No, that's right. And there's a couple other angles we haven't really covered. One is the um, ecological angle. Oh, yeah. That's sort of the, that, that dovetails into Bitcoin and stuff. When you start mining, you've got to have banks and banks and banks. And is did you guys, did we talk about um, the abandoned town near Bella Coola that had the... Ocean the, Falls? Yeah, with the generator, right? And somebody actually is has built a oh because that that uh, generator was there and not being used. They went, they moved in for Bitcoin because they could put a major bank of computers or something because the power was there. Interesting. There seems to be like three or four new versions of that digital monies. That's right. So there, these are all based on blockchain technology and it's an authentication method that requires a huge amount of computing power. First of all, you can mine new Bitcoins, but each new Bitcoin takes a longer and longer calculation. 
And so that's why they now take even more more computing. And apparently Bitcoin is worse than some of the other alternatives like Dogecoins or whatever they're called, Ethereum. There's other types of this currency. Worse for climate uh, pollution. Yes, that's right. And, you know, like there can be, you can run it on your own computer, but you don't have the processing power that some of these are, like you say, like that Ocean Falls installation must be quite interesting. You know, dozens, at least dozens, maybe hundreds of systems just running these algorithms to find more. The thing I don't understand is, isn't one Bitcoin worth $50,000 or more right now? Or it's hovering around there someplace? It's kind of been plummeting recently, but yes. Yeah, but what did it start out as? Oh, it would have been like, I don't know, $100 or something like that. Because they knew that uh, it was cheap to mine it. So in the early days, it would have been really Oh, to start, low. because you're not going through that many calculations yeah. and yeah, stuff. Yeah, you could just, anybody who knew about this new concept and who bought into it basically as a speculative investment would start running on their computer the algorithm. And like, I bet you there are thousands, if not tens of thousands of people who are rich today who can now buy Beeple art because they were <laughs> in early on... Yeah, but isn't that just like a stock? So, so that that fifty thousand level can go up and down, right? Yeah, this goes yeah. to Rich's House of Cards thought and mine too. You just kind of think at some point, isn't somebody going to get tired of paying real live dollars that were acquired doing real live activities, or maybe not? Maybe they're acquired doing Wall Street or something. But it is like a stock. It is speculative. And if people decide they no longer have faith in their ability to redeem Bitcoins or Dogecoins for actual cash, the whole thing will just go like. Yeah, it's it's super, it's super high risk. Yeah, and uh, But people like, like I would have told anybody who asked me, don't do that. I would have told them that two years ago. And the people who would have ignored my advice would be super rich right now. So I I have the same feeling right now. Like it is going to crash at some point. So you just have to decide, you know, when is that moment? But when there's stock in a company, they issue a fixed number of shares. I know there's, you can later issue more shares, but it's fairly complicated. But in general, you can think of a company as having say a hundred thousand shares and that's it. So then you can do the math on what's this company really worth and divide that by the number of shares and say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to pay more than current market, buy some shares. But with it's totally different, isn't it? When there's, especially in the early days of Bitcoin, who knows how many shares there are? Who, who knows how many coins there would be in the future? Well, actually, a lot of technical people knew that there would be a lot, you know, there would be a lot of coins now, so get them while you can. Yeah, and because because the increasing complexity is the ceiling, right? Yes. Yeah, it's more and more complex, requires mm. more and more computing power. But computers are, again, for the first time in maybe a decade, computers are really starting to take off in power again. So who knows? But what I really don't like is mainstream advertising and promotion of Bitcoin. Do you guys read the newspaper? Now, I think the newspaper, I think the target audience for people reading the newspaper tends to be people our age. Do you mean like a print copy of it? Yeah, a print copy. You know, I do know some millennials who have bought into the idea and they're excited. They're buying their Bitcoin and you hate to see that. Um, well, I guess I'm happy enough if they if they win. You guys, we're running out of time with Lee. We should maybe maybe we should look at listener mail. I just do want, I want to do one piece of listener mail and I don't know if you heard the show we did a little while ago and we, we talked about action movies and body counts mm-hmm. and that led very naturally into what a terrible actor Keanu Reeves is. I remember your, uh, your <laughs> yeah. length Did you hear how he said that too? It was like it was an objective fact. <laughs> right. <laughs> so we got an email from uh, my nephew and his wife, Nate and Erica of, I think, Palo Alto. I'm sorry if I got that wrong. And the subject is, how dare you? <laughs> and, the, <laughs> and the email reads, dear dogs, you should be ashamed of yourselves. Keanu is a national treasure in block letters. National treasure. 
and a Canadian one at that. That poor man has been through some of the worst ordeals of a person's life and has come out humble and sweet and perhaps the nicest man in Hollywood. Say what you will about his acting, but before you do, have you seen Toy Story 4? (laughs) (laughs) No, I have not seen it. I have not either. Like, it's... But it's animated. You're not seeing Keanu, right? Oh, no, yes, he's he's emoting heavily with his uh, Woody lines or whoever the hell he plays. I don't know. Woody, you, Woody uh, and she goes on, but you and I'm sure this is Erica. No offense, Nathan, but I think this is probably Erica writing this. But you can't mention Keanu without at least acknowledging the many, many good deeds he's done. Just Google Keanu Reeves, nicest man alive, if you need some anecdotes. <laughs> Be excellent to each other and party on dogs. Erica and me. P.S. <laughs> if you like John Wick, we recommend the movie Keanu, starring Jordan Peele and Keegan Michael Key. Which I seen. P.P.S. Jason Statham has indeed been in multiple Fast and Furious movies, including a spinoff with Dwayne Johnson, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. But we agree that it wouldn't be accurate to call him the Fast and Furious guy. So that's why I was poking fun at Kanunu earlier on. Just, uh, just adding a little bit here. As as uh, you might expect, I have just Googled Keanu, nicest man alive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first thing that comes up is a YouTube video, five minutes and 59 seconds. And the title of the video is Keanu Reeves being the nicest man alive for six minutes straight. So we will put, uh, oh, it was uploaded by Homeless Dude. So uh, we will, Good, we put will uh, put a link in the show notes. And I that. will just say... I am aware that Keanu has many redeeming qualities as a person. I, I am aware that he's considered a really nice guy. Um, and of course, I love to exaggerate his acting skills. Well, the thing is, it's actually if, not accurate. I love to exaggerate his lack of acting skills. But you're assuming that the character he's playing is not a wooden person. Mm-hmm. See, he plays all the wooden characters people. he's ever played. Yes. And it's just like John Wayne. All the characters John Wayne ever played were remarkably like John Wayne, the person. Except when he would veer off and do something like that Irish guy in the movie and was just god-awful because he's, yeah. he's just not been trying to be an Irish guy. With, with Kathleen O'Hara, yeah. yeah. Oh, God, that really was bad. But you know what I mean? Like, I don't really mind Kanunu that much, but I don't think he's a great actor. I really just don't. I thought that was a hilarious letter. Yes, he's Canadian, and he embarrassed all of Winnipeg by trying on Hamlet sometime early in his career. Right after Bob and Ted's Excellent Adventure or whatever. That, Bill, what was it? Bill, Bill and Ted. Ted, yeah. Anyways, so Eric and Nate, I'm sorry. I don't know that he necessarily even thinks he's a fabulous actor. No, you I know, don't. I never get the sense from him that he's all full of himself or anything. He's, right. he's like, probably maybe because he's so nice, but he just doesn't really seem to... To, to think of himself when he's talking about acting and stuff, you know, the craft, he doesn't do all that. You know, he just, I think he just kind of accepts that this is the job I do. And yeah. uh, I know, think I that Hamlet that. thing was just a little detour early on in his career. Well, and everybody used to say, you know, you, you weren't an actor unless yeah. you had done. In his salad days. And maybe he got that out of his system. Cause you're right. I don't, I don't think he, he doesn't behave as though he thinks he should be up there getting Oscars. He just seems like he, but it's just funny because I really do think in just about everything he does, he's just the same guy and he has the same walk and the same look and everything. I just, and he, he may be a very nice mom to the Oscars though. I think that's nice. You know? What's that? I think he always takes his mom to the Oscars or something, you know, he's, why would he be going to the Oscars? Well, it's a, you know, he's an actor. He, he's a member of the Academy. He gets to go like in the audience. Okay. <laughs> I think you're giving, still giving him short shrift. I think, you know, you're the basis of your argument is, you know, he's a bad actor because he's a bad actor. <laughs> like, Oh, he's all the same. Well, that means you can't catch the nuances of his roles. It's and you they don't exist. And you don't even acknowledge how hard of a worker he is in preparing for his roles. Not all of acting is the words you say. I mean, the John Wick stuff is ballet-like. And, uh, so, you know, and it's Nate, violence. You better send RJ some flame mail for this. Because, I mean, Why? come on. You're not even remotely serious about ballet-like my... It is. It's amazing. 
Mm. No, I'm serious. When you, when you watch actually those John Wick shows, how much went into the physical stuff in there? Because the camera stays rolling. It's not like those super cut movies that drive you crazy. Yeah. Oh, here's one half second of them aiming. Oh, here's yeah. another half second of somebody falling over. And here's a three quarters of a second of this. They'll just keep the camera rolling. He's just moving from person to person, leaving a trail of bodies in his wake. Fantastic. I think he is really good. <laughs> I'm going to have to watch these John Wick movies. Mm-hmm. Start with John Wick one. I recommend it. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> To the to the point he imposed it on house guests who had zero interest. That's all. I don't think that's an objective review. I don't hate Keanu, and and I just think it's mainly fun to make fun of him. Oh, this is Nancy Nancy of New Westminster's response to the same thing in part. Good afternoon, dogs. Responding to kill counts. I love action movies and have no problem with killings if there's a decent story and plot behind them. Don't give me zombie movies and chainsaw massacres. Gratuitous violence and killing doesn't do it for me. Bruce Willis movies or Death Wish, they had great stories behind them and I enjoyed them. I watched The Kingsman number one not too long ago and I was a bit conflicted. The big kill scene was so over the top and gross, but it was also funny. I just see these movies as entertaining and don't pay too much attention to the body count. On the other hand, documentaries on real life gruesome killings and Hollywood reenactments I do find disturbing. If they're newsworthy, i.e. real, I don't want to watch. Action movies, in my opinion, are not reality shows, so I can, quote, ignore, unquote, the killing. Fair yeah, enough. Makes sense. She says, I'm with Pat on not being famous. This is, this is a different topic, but we had talked about that a little bit. I'm with Pat on not being famous. Way too much pressure in one's image and witness what we're doing, what I'm doing, what I'm enjoying doing to Canunu. Way too much pressure on one's image, and I would have a real hard time keeping my mouth shut. I've been asked a couple of times to run for city council, and I just look at them like, do you know me? I pretty much lack any discretion when it comes to dealing with some of the things my friends on council have had to deal with. Regarding the crown, this is great. Regarding the crown, I found myself constantly fact-checking on Google. Is that an oxymoron? While watching the show. I did learn a lot of things I didn't know before about people like Churchill and the history of the royal family, the Falkland Islands, the hidden sisters in the asylum, etc. But I was also very aware that this was a fictionalized version of the royal family. Having said that, the acting and writing was so well done, it was hard not to put stock into some of the behaviors of the royals. It was a good series, and I'm glad we watched it. Good show, guys. So I think her remarks tend to support what we were talking about earlier, it's kind of ironic that the better the program is written and acted, the more plausible the fiction is and the more difficult to distinguish from reality. Hence the damage. How do you fix that? Act badly, you know, have implausible scripting. I don't know what you do. And I mean, she's like, Nancy's a smart person. So she actually is fact checking. And I think that's good. Like there is some incumbency on, on the audience too, not to just swallow everything hook, line and sinker, but since audiences by and large, you know, do <laughs> yeah. that there is, there is some danger there. And one of the examples I'd used in my letter to PJ about not being able to separate is back in the old, like in the 1940s and fifties, when war movies were made, American war movies were made depicting Japanese people, which were completely one viewpoint of, of it. But it sure helped shape how a lot of people thought about the Japanese because they got one viewpoint rammed at them in a movie and they came away suspicious of Japanese people because of the way they were portrayed. So, you know, and that was that was in a time when people couldn't just go and Google and fact check. They Mm. just swallowed it. So now. That's what bothered me about The Crown, I guess, more than anything. People can go fact check, but they're not. Yeah. They're just leaving. Yeah. So then you get to have a, a conversation there, uh, maybe not for today, but, you know, about is the issue really that we are so conditioned to blindly just swallow whatever's coming? Have we become so convinced that older or more traditional sources of information aren't reliable, that we're just now prone to believing everything, hook, line, and sinker? Are we just left believing whatever we want to believe for whatever motives we each individually have? I don't know. 
Like, well, some people clearly do that. I mean, that's why you've got your conspiracy theorists yeah. and everything swallowing just the most ludicrous crap yeah. and taking it as real because they read it, they saw it, they heard it, and they want to believe it. I want to just thank you for coming on with us. That was a real pleasure. We hope you can do that again sometime pretty soon. Take care of yourself. And you people listening to this, feel free to let us know what you thought. Uh, except Nate and Erica. <laughs> no more no, from Nate and Erica, please. Yeah, absolutely. And the next time we're down there having uh, dinner with you guys, you know who to talk to. <laughs> That's right. Like you can ignore me. Because I'm clearly old and crusty and talk to Rich because he's so well-balanced and humane. Mm-hmm. Yes. At any rate, vaccines are rolling. Everybody's getting them. Hands up in the room who has had them. I think, KJ, you're the only one who's not yet. Is that right? You got yours? Saturday. Hey. Boy. Congratulations. So I'm loving that. I'm loving, you know, more and more people getting one. So keep that up, everybody out there who's on the team. That's really good. And take care of yourself in any case. And we'll hope to see you again soon. Nice to meet you, Lee. Nice to e-meet you, too. <laughs> e-meet you, yeah. Thanks, Lee. Thanks, Lee. It was great seeing <laughs> thanks, you again. Thanks you a lot. Thanks, guys. It was a pleasure. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.